0: Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush. I'm Michael. I am Gabe. And today we are talking about champagne, one of my favorite subjects. So both of us have been pretty excited about this for a hot minute. And we wanted to go through and just kind of give you a brief description of the history, give you a brief description of when different methods that we previously described in our last episode were developed and by who. So who shaped it, how it was shaped. And also what technologies, what sort of historical events were going on that ended up bringing us this product, which was, in large, a a marriage between a lot of really amazing people doing some practices that were very innovative, and then just nature doing its thing and happenstance accidentally creating something awesome.
1: Yeah. Before we get into that, though, there is one update that I wanted to give from the last episode. So if you... Remember from the last episode, I had mentioned a pet gnat that a winery called Early Mountain is making. I couldn't remember the grape. The grape is Malvasia Bianca, which is, if I remember correctly, actually a Greek varietal, very old variety of grape. I actually just picked up a bottle this past weekend on a birthday trip. I took. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, We ended up at Early Mountain, had a really good time. Also, everybody
0: wish Gabe a happy birthday.
1: I'm 28. I hate it. <laughs> I am getting old. I am in my late 20s officially. I mean, I guess 27 is late 20s officially, but it's not, you know, like, I, I guess I can't complain too much, but
0: I mean, what, how can you complain? I mean, you know, time marches forward. Because I'm
1: 28, Michael. Time marches forward I'm for approaching <laughs> 30. Yeah, All the people listening are probably rolling their eyes at me right now. <laughs> yeah, you and me both, bud. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, happy birthday to me. Grabbed a bottle of that. But yeah, so that was Malvasia Bianca. It was not, I think I said Muscat or something. It, not that. I was right because I did say it began with an M. So I'm proud of myself for remembering that. I also actually uh, had a Malvasia Bianca at Gabriele uh, Russa's place. he I, I went to their winery as well. Oh my gosh. It was not a petnat. It was a still white wine. A very, very interesting grape.
0: Cool. Well, first off, we wanted to uh, correct something from our last episode as well. I mentioned having tried a regular Dom Perignon. So Dom Perignon is actually owned by Moa and Shandon. That is their regular label. So just to avoid any confusion, anytime that you have a vintage Dom Perignon, that is the only way that Dom Perignon is released, as opposed to Moa and Shandon, which is the parent company the difference being that Dom Perignon vintages are only collected, uh, the grapes are only collected from the historical area surrounding that abbey, so the Haute de mm-hmm. as opposed to Maud and Chandon, which sources from many different vineyards, which was actually one of the practices that was first introduced by Champagne. You You didn't have a lot of shipping between vineyards, specifically two houses, to then be blended into something that would become a singular product until champagne came along and that was one of the contributions of one of our main people but before yeah. we before we get into that we wanted to go into a little bit of the terroir of the french region it was mm-hmm. first kind of discovered by the romans well i say discovered there were people that were living there but the romans in around 300 AD they showed up and gave it the name champagne because it reminded them of some of these rolling hills that they had back in the area of, of Rome, of, of Italy, that, yeah. that general area. They planted some wine grapes there, but it was a, a kind of difficult terrain to to really produce the sort of wines that were popular in style at the time.
1: Still kind of is in a way.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, even if you've ever had a champagne, you'll notice that it, there's a heavy emphasis on, on citrus flavors. Mm-hmm. And this is due to the fact that it it's actually a lot cooler. It's a very northerly part of France.
1: Yeah. You get is. a lot earlier frosts. Yeah. It's, if I remember my maps correctly, it is the northernmost growing region four in grapes. France.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Four grapes. You do have uh, Normandy, which is above them. And that'll be, uh, that'll be an interesting episode later on, probably. Um, cause Normandy is where you have apples being grown and the whole reason why they started producing sparkling cider
1: was actually to compete with champagne (laughs) it's it's, gotta market yourself somehow
0: well no it's i mean and it's we'll we'll get into this more later but there's a lot of marketing that ended up being the uh cause for some of the profiles that came out of champagne so Mm -hmm. you have a lot of limestone as your subsoil it's about 75 percent limestone you also have a lot of chalk and a lot of marl And it's actually in such high quantities that the ground itself is basically white with this stuff, which reflects that sunlight up onto the leaves. And leaves can actually – they can absorb sunlight from below, mm-hmm. and the grapes themselves actually need that sun exposure, like yeah. we said in our in our terroir episode.
1: Yeah, it is, it's cool enough, and you're in a northern enough region where sunlight is extremely important, and even in certain vineyards, it might not be enough still to fully ripen. Yeah. So you need that reflection. Also very interesting, well, interesting to me because I'm a nerd, the soil type is primarily all the um, calcareous parts of the soil came from old seabeds and broken broken down seashells from you know millions of years of of erosion and um, stuff like that it actually is so we mentioned a couple episodes back about how southern england is now warm enough to just start to grow like chardonnay and stuff for sparkling wine part of the reason why they're able to grow these grapes in particular and have them compete with champagne is because they have the same soil type Mm. Um, it, it crosses, if you look at a, a soil map, it actually crosses the English Channel between France and okay, the so southern tip this, of the UK.
0: So there is an ancient seabed. Mm-hmm. That ended up being raised across that large of a space.
1: Yeah, it, it's really cool to to look at a map of it. So yeah, it's uh, it's all these old seashells that you oh, know. It's actually really exciting. Yeah, and then you have your limestone, and so that also will drive a lot of the minerality of these wines, which is kind of something Champagne is very widely known for is having very mineral-driven wine.
0: Wow, yeah. I, I still have yet to try anything
1: that that Britain is trying to produce yet. It is hard to find. Um, I think we mentioned this, but you know, their production is still pretty small. Obviously, thanks to modern technology, they're growing a lot faster than they would have, like we we're going to talk about oh, yeah. here coming up on Champagne over <laughs> hundreds of years. But, uh, you know, they're still small and they're, they're making a reputation. And because it's small, it's very hard to get your hands on, especially because they are kind of making ripples in the fine wine world. Their oh, wines yeah. are in high demand. People with money can buy them up. Uh, uh, when so. I think
0: wine, I have to admit, there's a, there's a very large part of me that just thinks English wine, really. It, it it's weird, right? <laughs> but then, like, you're mentioning ancient seabeds, you're mm. mentioning, uh, some of these things. I, I'm actually, I would be excited to try a British sparkling.
1: I, uh, I think the one that I have tried, I've only tried one still. I believe it was Gusborn. And. Gus it was a very impressive sparkling wine. Like, I'm not even, Michael is much more into sparkling wine than I am. I don't dislike champagne by any means. I just don't really go out of my way to drink it a whole lot. But I was actually very impressed by the Gus Bourne that I tried. Again, if I'm remembering that wine correctly, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Gus Bourne. And that's on my wish list now.
0: So, getting back to, to topic, mm-hmm. we kind of start our journey with the Romans, but... It was not the champagne that you were looking at today. So champagne today we would describe as a mostly clear liquid with fine beads of carbon dioxide bubbles. Yeah. Back in the day, it was basically a pale pink drink served uh, kind of as a dessert wine, really, because it it had trouble getting as dry as it wanted, but it was a still wine. It, It had no bubbles whatsoever, and really the first time that it was ever served with any type of notoriety was at Hugh Capet's coronation who was the first king of france in uh in 987 ad
1: i do want to say uh kind of on the sweetness thing not to interrupt you but we're saying sweet you might be thinking like off dry to like maybe medium yeah. dry these these were like fully sweet yeah. wines we have industrial strains of yeast now that we know can handle a full fermentation back then you're relying on the wild yeast and wild yeast can't, they're not always, um, durable enough yeah. to fully ferment a wine to full dryness.
0: Well, and, and one of the other big problems was the fact that it would get halted by yes. the cold weather. So it's, yeah. the, the area is so cold that the fermentation process would actually be halted. So the yeast would go dormant. The sugars would remain just in the liquid, which was part of the reason why if you did manage to get it still, it was going to be a sweeter wine. Mm -hmm. But if it didn't remain still, it was because of the fact that as soon as that product heated back up, it was going to start to ferment again, and that was going to trap in carbon dioxide. That carbon dioxide would express itself as from a light effervescence to something that ended up actually causing a lot of damage and a lot of loss. Yeah. This was actually the main focus that our, our first hero of the champagne industry was trying to correct. See, bubbles were considered a flaw completely in and, France. In France. Because at this time, they were already shipping bottle. well they weren't shipping bottles. They were shipping barrels of champagne to England. Yes. When they would ship it to England, England at the time had gone through a a huge energy crisis. They couldn't use timber anymore in order to make their glass, so they had to switch to coal. They did this begrudgingly, not realizing that it would actually produce better quality glass, which was thicker and more durable. And so they bottled the champagne that was sent over, and it started to referment— It was able to withstand the pressure that was three to four times the amount of a car tire. Yeah. That was not the case in France. No. In France, they still had fairly thin glass. The glass could not withstand that level of pressure. And so it would explode. And as soon as one exploded, you could have up to 90% of your cellar just in a puddle on the ground with glass
1: everywhere. That's also, if I remember correctly from my research, where some of the price tag That has been associated with champagne has come from, you know, in order to recoup the losses. I mean, you're still not going to recoup the losses on 70 to 90 percent of your product. But to get what you can back, you just you have to charge more.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, and that was also one of the reasons why Dom Perignon was so willing to part with the stuff that he knew was going to begin to re-ferment. Yeah. Um, Let's get into how we got started. So Christopher Merritt, he ends up promoting uh, wine in England. He does this at a feverish pace. He was a French exile. Demand ends up coming up. And after the French religious wars, a lot of money was actually being funneled into uh, the Champagne region, specifically to the Benedictine monks Mm -hmm. and to the Benedictine Abbey in haute which in 1668, Dom Perignon took over as the – I believe it was the cellar master – So he was the head seller, and he began to refine the growing and blending techniques. I cannot overstate this man's contribution. Yeah. He basically cut things off at at a meter tall. He was like, we're not doing anything above a meter tall. We need to have the highest quality growth at low yields, if that's what it costs. He would religiously prune the stuff. And he also introduced a couple of different innovations that shaped what champagne would then become.
1: Do we want to get into what he didn't do before we get into what he did do because oh, there's yeah. a lot of myths around yes there his are his name
0: so so his myth was kind of promoted by a guy named dom groussard who was his successor in 1821 his whole myth kind of surrounds this one statement where he was supposed to shout out in the middle of his uh in the middle of his cellar come look now I've, i'm tasting the stars and he has a very well-crafted english bottle in his hand mm-hmm. and he's Pouring, uh, pouring out this clear, lovely liquid. This was pretty much done for marketing reasons. Yeah. Uh, it was it was far after Dom Perignon's death. Dom Perignon, uh, I believe he died in 1715. Yes, um, correct. So these two never met. Yeah. And certainly, although I do think that tasting the stars is an appropriate description for champagne today, as much as I love champagne, there are a lot of people who contributed to it. It was not just Dom Perignon, although Dom Perignon, he did help to shape it. So things that he didn't
1: do. Yeah, so Dom Perignon, kind of along going off of the come quickly, I'm tasting the stars quote, Dom, as with pretty much all of France at the time, considered bubbles a flaw Dom actually spent most of his career trying to keep as many bubbles out of the wine as he possibly could. It shaped his practices. Yes, in a way he was the father of champagne, but that can be a little misleading considering we associate champagne with bubbles. What he did pioneer, again, like you said, it was pruning methods. For wines that were sparkling, if he knew a wine had refermented or was going to referment, he would sell it to the English... However, he English loved it. They loved it, and they loved it from him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another interesting thing about Dom is he was kind of the first person to have his winemaking associated to his name Mm -hmm. rather than his religious order or the region that he was growing grapes in. It was, I want wine from Dom Perignon. That was kind of unheard of up to this point. You didn't know people by, or you didn't know the wine by the winemaker at the time. So he kind of pioneered that. Which was part of the whole thing that... The Champagne
0: region was trying to do. Originally, yeah. they weren't trying to create a product that was for parties or for celebrations. They were trying to compete with Burgundy.
1: Yeah. So I- even the wines that he did ship off to England that he knew were going to referment or had refermented, he tried to make as quality as possible. And, mm-hmm. and England really liked that. He also did not have the ability to identify a vineyard uh, to our current historical knowledge. Mm-hmm. He was not able to identify a vineyard through a blind tasting. But to he, his credit, he did do blind tastings, but he did it specifically because he didn't want to know what vineyard it came from. He didn't want it to influence his um his propensity. perception. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah, he didn't want any proclivity towards what he was doing because we'll get into this on what he did do. But he did kind of uh, help expand what blending wine was doing in Champagne.
0: Oh, and he did it in a really interesting way. See, most people, if they did blend wine, it was after they had already pressed it. Mm hmm. He actually would taste the grapes without knowledge of where the grapes had come from, and then he would try to figure out how to create the highest quality product by blending those grapes before they were even pressed. Yeah. Which is fantastic. The other thing that he did was is he ended up uh developing uh cocard, which was a pressing method where you're using the, the grapes themselves as the weight mm-hmm.
1: initially. He also did not invent wine corks. No, he that did is, not. That is a myth. Wine corks had been in circulation for a long time before he arrived. Yeah, the, yeah, a good deal of time. And we
0: know this because they were dating the, yeah. the corks themselves.
1: But uh, that, that kind of wraps up myths, unless you had anything else on oh, them. No, no. So let, what what did he do? Well, you just mentioned the cocard.
0: Yeah, so he had the cocard. He would blend before pressing. He eventually started using English glass. He also was one of the first people, because The difference between Pinot Noir and uh, Chardonnay, those are the two grapes that are typically going to be used inside of any champagne. He noticed that the Chardonnay was more volatile. It was more likely to referment as opposed to the Pinot Noir. So not only would he be more likely to use Pinot Noir, but he also figured out what time of year that he wanted to pick it. And specifically, he introduced the idea of early morning harvesting. He actually Mm -hmm. recognized that there were environmental factors that went into the quality and the character of how the grapes would react throughout the fermentation process simply from the time of day that you picked them. This was an awareness of terroir and the biology of the grapes that we didn't we didn't see at the time.
1: Yeah he also uh, I don't know I didn't come across this in my research I don't know if people were blending um, white and red grapes before this but Dom really pioneered the concept of blending chardonnay and pinot noir together to combat the vintage variation that happens in champagne he was he was so good he actually kind of figured out before a lot of people did how vineyard aspect affects grapes he could tell there is a difference between the grapes coming from this vineyard and this vineyard and it seems to be related to which way the vineyard is facing its location how much sunlight it's getting versus this vineyard so he was very ahead of his time on that, yeah. and blending grapes together helped him to create more consistent product, and also to create whatever he could make that year that was what he considered to be the best. He did very much prefer Pinot Noir yeah, over Chardonnay, as you said.
0: Well, and that was, that was the thing. What they were trying to do was create a completely still wine that was high-quality Pinot Noir grapes that was also clear. Mm-hmm. They didn't want any of the the character coming or the color coming from the grape skins, which are
1: black. And that's why that Cacard method is so important. That was what allowed him to get this white, clear juice out of Pinot Noir. It's so fantastic.
0: So before Dom Perignon had even taken over, things had already kind of grown in popularity in England. Christopher Merritt, in 1663, he created a, a booklet that actually described the method, or or rather the reaction that they observed in re-fermentation, how in the bottle it would get trapped with the sugars and the yeast, and because it was just a little bit warmer in England, it would re-ferment when they bottled it there. See, in England, as opposed to it being seen as a flaw, it was actually seen as the party thing. It was yeah. a curiosity.
1: Yeah, they liked it.
0: And it actually created a lot of scientific curiosity within that community. So then there was this kind of stark contrast between your British sellers and your French sellers and French sellers. You went down, you would sometimes see somebody with an eye out because they would lose all of that product. Mm-hmm. Or as, uh, as you know, this is answering a question I actually asked on, uh, on Instagram at Laidback Lush at Laidback Lush, you had. These things that looked like fencing masks. So on, on Instagram, I posted a picture of a young lady who is holding two bottles of champagne with what looks like a fencing mask on because the explosions were so frequent, they actually needed that just to keep their workers safe. Yeah. So, you know, it was actually nicknamed devil's wine
1: mm-hmm. because of that. It would just randomly explode. Following up on the very popular medieval concept of everything that goes wrong is the devil. (laughs) Every Yeah,
0: and this is the environment where somebody from an abbey ends up noticing things about terroir and all that stuff. I cannot overstate how much Dom Perignon was ahead of his time. Yeah. Where everybody else just kind of tried to interpret things through whatever lens that they had. He was actually observing and adjusting his practices in order to to fit and work with the nature around him. Mm Mm-hmm. So it gets super popularized in England. England had more money than France at this time. There were a lot of wars that were kind of going on. Those wars ended up also kind of devastating the French regions. So a lot of the spending power shifted to England and their import of champagne. So in the middle of all these wars, you also had the French royalty start to kind of pick up steam on the idea of having sparkling champagne. And it becomes so popular that all these houses start popping up in Champagne trying to do this on purpose. They kept on running into the issue of the fact that their glasses weren't strong enough, so they started importing the English glasses in order to do stuff. But they were still losing a lot of product, even as late as the uh, as the mid-1800s, simply because the Industrial Revolution hadn't really hit them yet. Yeah. And the glass
1: in France would have been called their uh, Anglais
0: oh yeah in the uh
1: in the english style again we say this i think almost every episode where we have to pronounce anything french we are not french we don't know how to pronounce it so if we butchered that i apologize
0: and if you know the correct pronunciation of any of the words that we're saying send us a little uh voice thing in in our instagram and we'll yeah correct us please please <laughs> please we are here to learn so a couple of these big personalities besides dom perignon that ended up shaping the way that champagne now tastes, one of the biggest ones that I can think of is Madame Clicquot. Now, you probably know her as Veuve Clicquot, which is the name of the product. Veuve means widow. Uh, She was born in 1777, and she took over her husband's business in 1805 when she was widowed at the age of 21. She was the daughter of a wealthy family, but she had so much skill as a businesswoman and a winemaker, she ended up developing the process that we described in our last episode, riddling, Yeah, which is the slow, periodic turning of the bottles while raising them at a steady incline in order to get all that sediment out, which they would actually switch glasses at parties in between pouring the champagne because the sediment really did cause some off flavors. Yeah. The clarity that people were going for, just it wasn't a thing until she developed this method, Mm -hmm. which she tried to keep a secret for a solid second.
1: Yeah, she uh, also utilized uh, Liquor d'Expedition, if you remember from the last episode. Mm -hmm. That's what you top off your bottles with after, because again, you lose wine with all that pressure pushing the sediment out.
0: It's still so interesting. He mentioned in our last episode that the whole reason that they even have the bit of foil or paper around the top of the neck is that not everybody was doing that yes you know they didn't want you yeah. to know that you had lost a little product but she did that and she was incredible at marketing so mm-hmm. she was a
1: very savvy businesswoman oh my
0: gosh so during the so this is a bit of a side note but during all these wars you actually had napoleon staying at her house right but then she also would send out salespeople ahead of his battles to market to whoever the winner was then the Russians end up occupying Champagne. She was quoted as saying, you know, they're drinking today, tomorrow they'll pay. Uh She knew exactly who to market what things to. And at that time, you also had a difference in the sweet tolerance or the sweet preference from every single country. So you had the Russians who loved it real sweet. You had some of your more northerly countries who also liked it pretty sweet. The Americans, mm, pretty sweet. And then the British, they liked it pretty dry. Yeah. So she was able to market to each one of these groups mm-hmm. beautifully. She was a very savvy businesswoman.
1: And again, dry, even at this point, is still pretty pretty it's much sweeter yeah. than what we would consider dry today.
0: Yeah, dry, you're still looking at a lot of residual sugars. It wasn't until Perrier and Gillette introduced their first dry champagne that we actually saw it on the market. They shipped it to England. When England got it, they initially were like, This is just brutal. You know, we've had things that weren't sweet, but this is brutal. And that's how it got its name. But it wasn't until Madame Pomery that it started really picking up steam. Now, it was only in the course of about 20 years. So what I'm thinking is, is you had the next generation come up and they're all sitting there and they're thinking, oh, hey, uh, this is pretty good, but, you know, we could stand something drier. So Madame Pomery, she ends up taking over her husband's business in 1860, only two years after it was founded.
1: It had a bunch of different interests. They, uh, what was it, lumber, fur. Well, I know Madame Clicquot's was uh, wool and banking and champagne production. And, yeah, And, and then think... she moved exclusively to champagne. I believe Pomeroy was very similar. I do remember wool yeah. specifically for her as well. I
0: think it was wool
1: and lumber. I think you're right. That that sounds right.
0: But she, Louis Pomeroy, she decides that it's all just going to get focused on Wine as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, she ends up buying about 120 carved uh, limestone pits that were initially carved by the Romans when they first moved in. So, yeah. so she kind of tied all that together. Those limestone pits kept everything at a consistent 10 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. Everybody else ended up following suit after her. So, yeah. cellaring was a thing that she. It wasn't that she was the first person to cellar. Obviously, many people cellared, but she saw the benefits of having that consistent temperature in those pits. Yeah. She also commissioned a bunch of reliefs to be made because she wanted people to come and visit these places. Yeah. Kind of pioneering the whole idea of wine tourism in and and of itself. In a time when travel was now a thing that could be done.
1: And they're still there to this day. So if you ever visit Champagne and you are lucky enough to go to that estate, definitely check it out.
0: Yeah. She was also the first person to, in bulk, start to ship out no sugar added, champagne, brute style, and it took off. Yeah. These three people, Dom Perignon, Madame Clicquot, and Madame Palmery, and to a certain extent, Peria and Gillette, they are the people that have really shaped how champagne has become. Mm -hmm. They're the people who have, have shaped the profile that it carries, this beautiful, refined... Very citrusy, often with toast notes, clear liquid with fine carbonation beads.
1: Yeah. And obviously, technology has further increased our capacity to make the wines drier, more clear, more precise, I, I'll say. Yeah. Over what even Pomeray would have been producing at the time, not to take away from her legacy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, It's just kind of, you know, these people pioneered the techniques that would continue to be studied and perfected for, you know, at this point, centuries, right? (laughs) Well, even riddling, you
0: know, you have a lot less waste now because Mm -hmm. the only real way that that's been changed has been automation. Yes. But automation is not a small deal. That really ends up advancing any technique. Yeah. So, yeah, but these three people, they're the ones that basically shaped
1: champagne as we know it today. Still currently... The trend is still towards getting drier. A lot of houses now are making Brut Nature style wines, which if you remember from last episode, that means zero grams per liter to maybe about like three, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. or maybe six. Uh, pretty sure it's three. Very, 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 very dry wines. And that kind of what Pomeray started on, that drier and drier and drier style has stuck around. You're very hard pressed even now, Most producers are not going to be making anything past brute going into a sweeter Mm -hmm. style. Uh, At least I I don't really see that very often.
0: She was interesting because she she actually was brought up in a uh, British boarding school. So she knew where the money was and she knew what they wanted, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a large reason why she, she ended up producing the wine that she did produce. Nowadays, people are really into the drier champagnes because it does have this name of being this ultra refined product. Yeah. Not a lot of people are looking for a lot of the sugars. They're wanting a lot of complexity. Yeah. Which you can get some interesting notes, especially off of a particularly well aged champagne. You're getting biscuit, you're getting graphite, you're getting pencil shavings, you're getting, obviously you can, you know, you can get apple and, uh, your citrus fruits, Mm -hmm. but these, these are very, I want to say interesting, refined flavors that one could say are offset by by the presence of residual sugars.
1: Yeah. Let's actually get into that a little bit on what can you expect in a bottle of champagne from a production standpoint now. So, So you're walking into the store and you're trying to get yourself a champagne. And if you're familiar with old world wine law, old world meaning basically Europe. Most regions in Europe have very strict rules on what you can and cannot do with your wine. So in champagne, uh, we talked earlier in our previous episode about how in in the traditional method that all champagnes are made with, you have your lees aging in the bottle after that second fermentation that happens in the bottle. And then you also have a rest period normally after you've expelled all of the sediment. And you just have the wine in there to kind of, you know, let it calm down, integrate with the liquor d'expertion and all that stuff, right? So for your kind of, in general, wines from Champagne, you have to have at least uh, 15 months in the bottle before you release it. 12 of those months are mandatory lease aging. Mm-hmm. So you're getting at least a little bit of biscuity notes. Most of your producers are going to go above that because they want obviously to at least hopefully be producing the best possible product that they can. So a lot of them go for two to three years mm-hmm. for whatever the ratio to Lee's aging versus just in the bottle will obviously vary from producer to producer, depending on the style they're going for. But that's kind of what you can expect when you get into your vintage champagne. So remember, champagne in general is not a vintage wine. Yeah. It is not made. I mean, it is made year to year, but it, the wines in there are not always from that year. It's a yeah. blending process. They'll,
0: they'll blend them in order to achieve a certain quality of, of wine that they believe is not just releasable, but ideal. Yes. With what they have available.
1: So the minimum for a vintage is three years. Most people will go again above and beyond that four to 10 years potentially. So we mentioned if you're, Shelling out for a vintage champagne, you're probably shelling out a fair amount of money versus what that producer's, you know, base level product will be. You are paying for production in that. Some places you're also paying for the name. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Moet and Chandon and Vu Clicquot, excuse me, are still in production. They're still in business. They are some of the top houses in the world for champagne. So... You know, you're paying for the name as well, but you're not, you're not necessarily paying for nothing besides the name. You are paying for the effort that went into those grapes. If the chateau or the producer is using Grand Cru grapes. So if you don't know, Grand Cru is a delineation of vineyard. Mm-hmm. Grand Cru is like your top vineyard site. Then you have your premier crews under that, which are kind of like almost there. But the the grapes they produce aren't quite to the quality, mm-hmm. and this again, this is all legally mandated. People go in and like inspect and look at the land and decide. And then you have uh, your your there are other levels, but you kind of have your base level and some other ones thrown in there beneath the premier. But premier and grand cru are kind of if you're looking for the highest quality you can get, then that's what you should look for. Actually, Dom Perignon even though it has the name of Dom Perignon and it sells for quite a bit of money from my recollection, is not all Grand Cru because the vineyards that that site holds historically are not all Grand Cru and they are not. Dom Perignon was not using all Grand Cru grapes himself. And so in the honor of his name and his legacy, they want to use, Moet and Chandon wants to use the grapes that he would have been using from the sites that he was using. So yeah. it's not all Grand Cru, but uh obviously they're putting great care into that wine every single time that they make a vintage of it.
0: Yeah, and I mean there are a lot of other great names too that I would recommend, uh Gabillard Vineyard, Mai, just to just to name a handful.
1: Cedric Bouchard is another one. Yeah. He is very hard to find his wines. I think the cheapest I've seen from him is $89. Most of his wines are well above 100. Um, I have not actually gotten the chance to try them, but I was in a course that we discussed his wines and his mm. winemaking. He's actually very interesting. He only does single vineyard vintage wines in Champagne. He's a very interesting producer. Definitely check him out. If you can, again, good luck getting your hands on him. If you know distributors, they might have some leads for you, but it, it is a very hard wine to get your hands on. Yeah,
0: there's also... Uh... Oh, I didn't tell you about this. The Tsarine. There is a type of champagne that was specifically designated to ship to the Tsar of Russia. Okay. They didn't put the little
1: well at the bottom of the bottle. Okay. Was it to prevent assassination attempts? Yeah,
0: he was so afraid that he requested that they have a different type of bottle created for him because he didn't want anybody planting anything. That's really funny. (laughs) It's, it was, yeah.
1: I mean, it's a czar of russia yeah. it's
0: probably credible
1: yeah well you know i think the 19th century, or the 20th century i should say kind of showed us how unstable that situation was
0: yeah yeah just a little bit um so yeah there are a lot of different ones that i would definitely recommend uh checking out unfortunately today we could not end this episode with a tasting yeah instead we decided to have mimosas with prosecco with prosecco (laughs) because none of that is above 40 dollars yes i also made a lovely uh a lovely dish of prosciutto on top of italian bread with some green onions and gabe decided to bring us the most amazing rainbow
1: (laughs) cookies thank you you crops (laughs) for selling out your recipes to the local grocery stores after you closed that would have been I'm so
0: glad that they did because honestly without these cookies it wouldn't even be Richmond yeah so yeah a lot of great names that I would recommend. Uh, there are also some champagne style wines that cannot be called champagne from around the world that we would heavily recommend. Mm-hmm. Some of them are being produced in Virginia. A lot of them are being produced in California.
1: Yeah. Again, look for uh, traditional method mm-hmm. or method traditionnel on the label that is the method that champagne uses yeah i don't
0: and i don't typically recommend uh things that have forced carbonation to begin with because i just don't think that it has the same uh the same aroma to it for some reason it's
1: not integrated as well normally yeah Yeah.
0: it's it's not a thing for me
1: yeah and you don't get really any Well, you're not going to get any lee's flavor from it you're not going to get any of that warm biscuit character to the wine from a forced carbonation.
0: I really, really, I I had intended for Gabe's birthday to grab him a bottle of champagne, but it was not to be. So we definitely will need to do that. We should definitely have a special episode where we do a champagne tasting. Mm-hmm. I just want to know your reaction. Yeah. Um. I'm kind of, I'm half expecting you to like it, but be like, but how much was it
1: for this? Because
0: <laughs> Champagne, it, it there is a price hike for the name. Yeah. You can get a lot of great stuff that is just from Burgundy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cremant de Bergeron is probably one of my favorite types of wine in the world. Yeah. The Pinot Noir grapes there, of course, are just phenomenal. So when they make a uh, Blanc de Noir, the White of Blacks, it's, it's just incredible. It's one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. This has been Laidback Lush. We hope that you guys have had a good time with us. Please follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Laidback Lush. Yeah. And we'll hopefully be talking to you guys soon in our next episode. Gabe was very excited. (laughs) to pitch the idea of doing a sake episode
1: yeah so it'll be a, a so far it's shaping up to be kind of more a label navigation we we want to yeah. kind of start doing a the shorter episodes we talked about last time i kind of want to start with that because navigating sake labels can be very confusing for the average consumer i know it was very confusing for me when i first started until i learned what those terms mean yeah. So just yeah. on the
0: brief description you're giving me earlier. I'm just like this is a completely different system. Yes Unfortunately, even though I've worked in Japan I know nothing about sake. I know it's made from rice.
1: Yeah. Um. And I I think that's the extent of most people's knowledge. Yeah.
0: And I know that I've tried some that I I liked, Mm -hmm. Uh. but I would not know how to navigate if I was in a store. I did once sell some to somebody speaking Japanese to them. That was a trip. And I'm sure (laughs) that they internally were dying.
1: Yeah, but I'm sure you did great.
0: Oh, well, they made me feel good about it. I
1: can (laughs) at least tell you that much.
0: But yeah, so I'm looking forward to learning about it. More than likely, it'll be uh, one of our Michael Light episodes, which I'm always a fan of. So we'll see you then. Send us a DM if you guys have any questions or if you want to discuss anything, if you have any ideas for future episodes, or if there's any content that you would like to to see uh, on any of our accounts. We would love to get your feedback on that. Yeah. So thank you so much. Like I said, this is Laidback Lush. I'm Michael. I'm Gabe. Cheers.